0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm April Wolf. There's a saying in TV and movies, never work with children or animals. And, well, you can imagine why that's a saying, right? Kids are kids, animals are animals. And actors are, you know, trained professional adults who went to school for this kind of thing. So anyway... Bo Burnham, the comedian, musician, and actor, just wrote and directed a movie. It's called Eighth Grade. And like you probably guessed from the title, pretty much everybody in the movie is under 18. And it's his first film. And it's great! Elsie Fisher, the star, is vulnerable. She's funny. She's sincere. The entire cast, they all did great. Bo says he wouldn't have done anything differently. But, you know, kids are kids.
1: Every Saturday, I'd go up to the town where we filmed and meet all the extras mm-hmm. and talk to them and just have a little conversation with them just so they felt comfortable enough so when they showed up on set, they weren't terrified and intimidated. Yeah. And I'd say, like, what's your name? Do you have a special talent? And one girl, I said, what's your name? And she goes, she said her name. I said, do you have a special talent? She goes, I have eczema. It's
0: Bullseye. It's Bullseye. Coming up, more from Bo Burnham and his film Eighth Grade. He'll tell me about the message he hopes the movie will carry.
1: Why can't an epic story about the human condition be about a girl going into a pool party and not a guy with a sword or whatever? No offense to guys or swords.
0: After that, Jesse talks with Morgan Neville, the documentary filmmaker made 20 Feet from Stardom, Best of Enemies, and a bunch more. His newest film looks at the life of Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers, somebody he admires for his compassion, honesty, and, of course, kindness.
2: I feel like Fred was a warrior for kindness, (laughs) you know, as he says in the film, not Pollyanna-ish stuff, you know, but honest to goodness, kindness, that that's something that you have to fight for because we all take it for granted that we're going to live in the neighborhood together and we can trade against that in how we behave every day, but I don't think we should count on it.
0: Finally, I'll tell you about a writer, director, and actress who made the most brilliant movie, and then stopped. It's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm April Wolf in for Jesse Thorne. I'm a film critic for The Village Voice over here at Maximum Fun. I'm a panelist on the movie podcast who's shot Ya? and host of Switchblade Sisters, where every week I invite a new female filmmaker on and they select their favorite genre film. We're talking about horror, exploitation, sci-fi and so many others. And then we slice and dice that film with riveting discussion on craft of filmmaking. Anyway, let's get to our first guest this week, Bo Burnham. If you know Bo Burnham's work, maybe you saw his stand up act. His latest was Make Happy, which debuted on Netflix in 2016. Maybe you've seen him act in The Big Sick, Parks and Rec, or Zack Stone is Gonna Be Famous, his MTV show. He's also one of the original YouTube hit makers, before Justin Bieber, before Rebecca Black, before Leave Britney Alone even. Bo became internet famous back in 2006 when he set up a camera in his bedroom and started belting out songs like My Whole Family Thinks I'm Gay and Welcome to YouTube.
1: YouTube is a place for people to share their ideas. If by people you mean 13-year-old girls, and by ideas you mean how they love the Jonas Brothers. I'm just kidding, but let's be honest, that's a hefty majority. And if you don't believe me, well then you must be a noob. So welcome to YouTube.
0: Fast forward over a decade later, and Bose created a film that, in a lot of ways, rejects the medium that got him famous. It's called Eighth Grade. The movie follows Kayla, a 13-year-old, wrapping up her last week of middle school. She's quiet, like a lot of 13-year-olds. She's also a little awkward, like a lot of 13-year-olds. And like pretty much every 13-year-old today, she's extremely online. She snaps, she texts, she runs a YouTube channel nobody watches. And through Kayla, Eighth Grade tells us a story that's both uniquely 2018 but also totally universal. A movie about identity, school, the human condition. So let's take a listen to a little bit from 8th grade. Kayla, played by Elsie Fisher, is shadowing a high schooler named Olivia, played by Emily Robinson. They become friends, and then Olivia invites Kayla to the mall. And in this scene, the kids gather around the food court and get to know Kayla just a little bit more. She's different generation than us. She's, She's not a different generation. More. Yeah, she is.
1: She's four years younger than us. I mean.
0: Okay, but people who are like
1: four years older than us felt like... Fifty years old.
3: It's like lately, not true. your sister.
2: My sister just sucks.
1: Okay, but like, on top of that, she didn't have Twitter in middle school, and we did. That made us different. Kaylee, well,
2: you're not different than us.
1: Well, yeah. When did you get Snapchat? What grade? Fifth
2: grade fifth
0: grade. Oh. What? Oh. Yes. Bo Burnham, welcome to Bullseye. Thanks
1: for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Uh, first off, um, when did when did you get Snapchat?
1: I never got Snapchat, actually. (laughs) I think I had it for like a week, two years ago when I was trying to, I don't know, get the word out about a special or something. Um, And I was so confused by it immediately that I stopped. Snapchat was the first thing I think I came in contact with social media wise where I was like, whoa, I am old. I have no idea how this works or even how this appeals to someone.
0: Um, I I have to say this movie that you wrote and directed, Eighth Grade, it punched me in the heart... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in such a good way. But I, I sat in the theater and uh, almost had a panic attack just watching her. It hit very close to home, as I'm sure that it will for many other people. Um, and for so many filmmakers, their debut feature, and Eighth Grade is your debut mm-hmm. feature, uh, everyone says, you know, this is your most personal film. This is the first, you know, the one that where you introduce yourself to the world. How personal is this to you?
1: It's very, very personal. Um. It's more emotionally personal than it is circumstantially personal. You yeah, know, yeah. It's about a 13-year-old girl. I was never a 13-year-old girl. Um, I was also never a 13-year-old right now, you know, and I, and I was really trying to set out to not make a nostalgic movie that was about my past experience, but was really about my current feelings. And I, I was coming to terms with my own anxiety when I was writing this uh, and wanted to talk about it and wanted to talk about my relationship with the Internet in a, in a way. Um, and... I don't know. I, I, I guess I was feeling nervous and scared and weird and unsure, and I found commonality in, in in a 13-year-old girl's feelings. And and it's almost like she lives my feelings and my life more purely than I do.
0: It feels almost watching it like it's an exorcism of sorts. Like, I have to <laughs> get this out.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's that's a great way to put it. I love that. <laughs> I, I, that that's very, very nice. Yeah, I... I there's just something so visceral about that time, you know, uh, for all thirteen-year-olds. Just, just the the feeling of that time, and then, you know, in, in investigating the story and lo- and looking at kids online, um, there was just a certain type of kid that was that was really deeply asking sort of deep personal existential questions of of herself, and that sort of. But, the story became, i guess
0: i I'd like to go a little bit more into these people that you were looking at online i I know that you had done research um uh, watching these YouTube videos and finding young people who were trying to express themselves, yeah. you know looking into a camera yeah. and I was wondering, you know if you could tell us a little bit about some of the more profound things that you learned about these kids when you were watching these videos, something that you you really felt like you had to express through this movie?
1: Yeah, it's just the profound thing for me is is how just raw and honest and human the internet can be in the way people express themselves on it. It's usually seen as the exact opposite. And the internet usually self-selects for maybe the least raw or honest or most performed raw, mm-hmm. fake, you know, Confessionalism that maybe not maybe isn't actually true, but if you can search the internet in the right way, you know I would search for videos and and, and um, sort it by upload date instead of view count. You know, so you're actually seeing kids that posted a video thirty minutes ago. You know, to their twelve subscribers and no one's seeing it. And it's a video about something like how to be popular, how to be cool, how to dress correctly, um, and and the way they present themselves is just very beautiful and. They're lying, but it's transparent, and that's refreshing. And, you know, it's it, it, it's sort of like the mechanisms that we all sort of use as adults to hide ourselves and lie to each other. It's just completely transparent at that time. You know, it's just like you can see into the machine, and you can see how it's working. And, like, I don't know. I saw myself in them. I, I found myself, like, forgiving myself in them by seeing – you know, just by seeing – We tend to talk about the Internet in terms of, you know, just, oh, there's just narcissistic people who want attention. And trust me, I look at my friends in their late 20s and 30s on the Internet, and I just hate all of us. I think we're so, so embarrassing. (laughs) But when I can see that same thing in a a young person, when you you see where it starts, um, which is just, you know, wanting to be loved, wanting to connect, wanting to think yourself into being or or just be out loud in order to prove yourself maybe to yourself, you know, those are – those are beautiful human, vulnerable things, uh, and I think we forget that. That's that's where all this stuff is starting.
0: Do you, when you're searching, you said that you, you know, you look for the upload date. But do you have any keywords that you're looking for?
1: It, it's truly like you just just search the most obvious thing you can ever think of, like middle school advice video, cool and you 'll get uh, you know <laughs> dozens of uh, advice videos telling them how to be cool or how to have a best friend or hot dog dinner how to and you 'll find like a sad video of some guy making hot dogs in his house like like <laughs> you just that, that's the beautiful thing about the it, the internet it has an answer for everything it has a specific thing for every thing you could think of, but it's just like below the surface of the People like who I was. I mean, I was someone on the Internet that got attention. And we tend to kind of only talk about the Internet in terms of the people that are being watched. Um, But the majority of the Internet is people not being watched and people expressing themselves to very small audiences or no audiences at all. And I find them just as if probably more compelling than than what is trending or what's usually going viral. As someone that went viral, it's incredibly uninteresting.
0: (laughs) 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 Yes, you know from an experience. Yeah, yeah. And you actually, uh, you have a next uh, Netflix special. Uh, and we want to play a clip from that Netflix special. It's called uh, Make Happy. And uh, the special is a live stand up routine that was performed between uh, 2015 and 2016, I believe. And Bo, in this special, deconstructs various types of performances and then also the blurred line between the audience and the performer in the social media age.
1: Okay, I had a privileged life and I got lucky and I'm unhappy. <laughs> They say it's, it's like the me generation. It's not. It's not the arrogance is taught or it was cultivated. It's it's self conscious. That's what it is. It's the, it's conscious of self. What the social media, it's just the market's answer to a generation that demanded to perform. So the market said, "Here, perform everything to each other all the time for no reason." It's prison. It's horrific. It is performer and audience melded together. What do we want more than to? lie in our bed at the end of the day and just watch our life as a satisfied audience member I know very little about anything but what I do know is that if you can live your life without an audience you should do it and now you're thinking how the f*** are you going to dig the show out of this weird hole (laughs) oh you want me to be funny and make a point nah 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 (laughs) nah Batman so how do we do it Thank you for keeping the applause break.
0: <laughs> no, we want to make sure that you I know so nasally it's and weird. Well received, people <laughs> exactly. loved it.
1: I'm like, listen to my voice. I'm like, why do I? Why am I doing this like a slam poem? <laughs> like, why am I out of breath?
0: But <laughs> there, there is something to be said about you know uh, the performance. You do fall. Uh, every person falls into a kind of cadence because there is a certain thing that connects with people.
1: Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And that, it's such a different medium. And it's such a for me that medium. Uh, lend itself to really things that were very, very structured and word perfect. And the movie is like very, very running away from that. But that was sort of, that is sort of the other half of the side of the coin to, to this movie, which is that like, I felt, and I, I articulate it now twice, um, that I have a common, my my experience as a performer and and someone trying to express themselves is not unique to my profession. Mm-hmm. And I saw it in the kids that would come to my show. And then I wanted to sort of um, tell the story of one of the kids at my show. It's basically the, – the, the the simple version is if I – if there was a bridge I had to walk over to uh, write a story about a 13-year-old girl, it was yeah. built by them to me first. I, I felt understood by a 13-year-old girl bef- – by 13-year-old girls before I presumed to understand them. They saw themselves in my experience and I couldn't believe it and then that get, sort of gave me the strength to – feel like I could understand them as well.
0: Did you ever have an urge to put um, Kayla's character uh, into theater class? <laughs> uh,
1: that's funny. Um, n- n- not really. It was always such a small window of time. You know, it was all, The movie was always going, going to take over like five days at the end of school. So I wasn't going to engage in class that much. But yeah, I hope she gets involved with it. It would be a good thing for her to do. There's something very embodying about theater that's very good for young people. Yes. Especially young people that don't do sports. Um, Because, like, sports are obviously very important. It's just very important for kids to realize they have a body and they can move their body and they can... They're more than just... Especially for kids in theater, they can be the type of kids that lock themselves up in their head, like me. And the physical aspect of it is very, very, very important. Um, And that would help Kayla, I think. I think Kayla just, you know, taking some walks and getting out of breath and getting out of breath for a reason other than her anxiety would be good for.
0: Her. Yeah, yeah. It kind of, you're making the point to continue having physical ed classes. Yes, yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, no, but it, it really wasn't until later until I realized how how important that was. That it's like it, it's like therapeutic more than just, I don't know.
0: Yeah, maybe it, they should sell it that way, though. Well, it gets
1: structured as like the place for the the, the very kids that need it to sit it out and the very kids that don't need it to thrive in it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, that phys ed should be about the I don't know, the the weird anxious kids that that don't want to come out in their in their tank yeah. tops.
0: The other kids should maybe be forced to do theater.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. They they should do butoh and the the butoh kids should play some badminton.
0: <laughs> and you're supporting actors these young kids. They are all incredible.
1: Yeah, so it was just um it was really special. I got to go up and meet all the kids every every Saturday. I'd go up to the town where we filmed and meet all the extras mm-hmm. and talk to them and just have a little conversation with them. Just so they felt comfortable enough so when they showed up on set, they weren't terrified and intimidated. Yeah. And I'd say, like, what's your name? Do you have a special talent? And one girl, I said, what's your name? And she goes, she said her name. I said, do you have a special talent? She goes, I have eczema.
2: So
1: <laughs> So it's like... So it's like Another kid was eating a bell pepper like an apple. So, like, my job really was, like, how do you just get these kids into this movie unprocessed? You know what I mean? The, the way they are is so much better than anything I could ever come up with. So, mm-hmm. so there's references and things the kids shout in the movie that I don't even understand. You know, I don't get. But I recognize as as true, I think we all recognize, like, what an inside joke sounds like even when we don't understand it.
0: Yes. Um, and we need to bring up that pool party scene. Um yeah. Because uh, the way that you shoot it too, we we see Kayla. She's invited to a pool party, um, not by the the girl, but by the girl's mother, which is an extra layer of embarrassment. <laughs> uh, the, the, <laughs> the, the parents are trying to fix you up. Sweet the, of the mother, though. Yeah. Is, I think it's sweet of the. Did mom, that ever boy. happen to you, or like someone's mother invited you to something? Oh, I'm. Sh- yeah, yeah,
1: definitely. I can't totally remember, but I absolutely remember being at things where I was like, "This is. I am unwelcomed." <laughs> <laughs> or just to feel like the hovery parents trying to make you friends with someone else remember like my my someone someone's mom trying to get me and this boy together like over a bag of crazens and that was not happening <laughs> I was less interested in the him than even the craisins, which was a low bar for me because I was not crazy about craisins. They're cranberry raisins, if anyone's wondering.
0: <laughs> you two, you two boys, enjoy craisins,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. right? Is that right?
0: <laughs> um, the the way that you shoot that that pool scene too is it's pretty incredible. Um, and uh, Kayla, Elsie Fisher's face portrays such incredible anxiety she doesn't have to say anything we just know that she's so anxious did you have to you know what kind of direction did you give to her to tell her what to feel in that moment
1: she gets it you know like like truly she she gets it and she's dealt with anxiety and we talked a lot about we we talked so much more about anxiety than like my eighth grade experience we wouldn't talk about eighth grade we would talk about what it felt like to be anxious in the world and how you deal with it yeah um so she got that, and her joke was always like, I'm really good at being sad, you know what I mean? Because she would she would snap out of that scene and be running around the pool having fun. Like, she was not... I was the one that was, like, it, being a psycho method person, like, staying in the emotion. <laughs> she was able to snap in and out of it. Um, like, she was not miserable that day. I, I, I was so worried that I was going to have to do that. I was really worried. I was like, I don't want to have to manipulate a kid into feeling these awful emotions. Um, and I didn't have to. Elsie just knows it. She she knows what it's like to be in those situations and feel that way. Um, and she's just able to just kind of turn it on magically. I have no idea how.
0: And the the writing that you give them, too. I mean, I'm assuming, you know, you're telling me all these, you know, ad libs that these kids have. Were you changing the script as you went?
1: No. And really, the ad libs literally are just like when the kid's like, LeBron James, you know what I mean? Like yeah. little – But but the script itself – to the actor's credit, to Elsie's credit, is very scripted. You know, her monologues are written like, um, yeah, so the thing about being yourself is, uh, wait, ugh, I'm reading this off a piece of paper, sorry. Um, It was it was written to be inarticulate. Now, they didn't have to be word perfect. You know, it wasn't about like, oh, you missed an um, but it was about... The script was hopefully giving them permission to fail to speak correctly, mm-hmm. Um, which is, to me, the story of being young. And the problem with most teen movies for me is that they're little poet laureates where it's like the the whole point of being young is that you're you're beginning to learn how to think you're beginning to learn how to speak um and your speech is an imitation of all the other ways you hear people speak um so that that was important to just capture that but you know, you can write it as much as you want to write the script. It has to be authored by the kids in every moment. You know, in terms of looking like they are genuinely trying to speak and not reading lines.
0: And then, uh, I mean, you you bring up the the YouTube videos. You know, the way that she speaks for those, um, and in this film, uh, Kayla is attempting to express herself by filming herself in these self-help videos that she posts online and maybe gets like one or two views, Mm. possibly from her father, (laughs) uh, which is this extra layer of uh, tragedy. But I'd love to play a clip from that, um, from one of those videos. And this is Kayla um, telling people, you know, how to be true to themselves.
2: Hey, guys, Kayla back here with another video. Uh okay. So the topic of today's video is putting yourself out there. Um okay. So like what does that mean? Where is there? Well, there can be anywhere that you wouldn't usually go, you know, maybe because it's like weird or scary or um something like that.
0: The way that she speaks. Mm. Every video that you have in this is is so realistically a YouTube video. Mm-hmm. It is, it, it. I feel like I'm watching it be mm. made in real time, <laughs> in real life. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure that this is from your obvious studious, your scholarship of, of YouTube. Um, but how do you view the language that people yeah. use? Because it, it is a it's, very similar language.
1: Yeah, performative. Um, I think they know, Elsie understands the way you're told to present yourself to the world. Um, but I think what makes... The videos feel real is that Elsie feels genuine that that's what it it feels like she is genuinely trying to be understood and that's what I felt from the kids when I watched their videos that like you might not know what you're talking about at all, but you you want to help people mm-hmm. you actually you actually want to it's not ju- it's not just about lying to yourself it's not just about vision boarding out loud it's also like. I remember being that age and having a real want to, like, the moment I learned something to change the world with it. You know, I think think that's beautiful. The irony of it is that, like, I was so, for so long, I just played to young people, you know, and I was so, I wanted an older audience so bad. I wanted the cool 30, 40-year-old comedy audience and not my teen audience, Um, which is wrong. You know, And at a certain point I realized, like, I'm so lucky to have, young people looking at my stuff. And, and uh, I was told so often, oh, my God, you're just a comedian for 13-year-old girls. And then at a certain point, I was like, yeah, I am. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And made this movie. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I hope the kids dig it. You know, um, truly, I made the movie for myself. In terms of an audience, I wasn't thinking of an audience. Um, and I especially think, like, movies in this space are bogged down by this sort of appeal to any demographic. Um, uh I think trying to appeal to people looking back in that time or just trying to appeal to kids doesn't necessarily lend itself to something honest. So I just, I just think everyone should be able to see themselves in her. You know, that, yes. that it isn't. Um, why can't an epic story about the human condition be about a girl going into a pool party and not a guy with a sword or whatever? No offense to guys or swords. But I'm saying like <laughs> I see myself in her this is not a story about my younger daughter or my younger self or my younger sister. You know, this is me. And I, I have tended to most personally and profoundly connect to films that I don't demographically align with. Those are the movies that I have been most personally affected by because that is something I, I go to the movies for and look to art for. To It is so powerful for me to find commonality in somebody and a character an experience that, that I feel like I didn't have and yet I fully understand. I mean, that's so, such, a, such a beautiful thing. And um, I, I felt that in the writing process, and I certainly felt that in the, in the production with actually collaborating with Elsie. Mm-hmm. You know, everything was confirmed when I met her. I'm like, oh, we are the same person. We are wired similarly. We are. I have so much more in common with you than I have most men my age.
0: We'll have more of my conversation with Bo Burnham when we return from a short break. He'll tell me why he thinks eighth grade is the only project he's worked on that he can enjoy watching. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from ZipRecruiter. Hiring is challenging, but ZipRecruiter can make it simple, smart, and fast. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 job boards with one click. Then it scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash bullseye. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. There's a new way to hear Morning Edition, All Things Considered, and all your favorite programs. Just ask your smart device to play NPR. Listen to your local station anytime, like this. Hey, smart device, play NPR. Beginning this summer, you can listen to new episodes of Inside Pop every other week for an even deeper dive inside the world of pop culture.
1: Now, we're still bringing you our brilliant insight, always on the nose opinions, and insidery inside information on the most interesting pop culture stories of the week.
0: And we'll also have interviews with the pop culture professionals who create the culture you crave.
1: For example, we'll speak to casting directors about how they find the right talent for the right role.
0: We'll talk to music supervisors about how they choose the music to create the right mood.
1: And we'll grill producers who will discuss what exactly a producer does.
0: Oh man, Sean, how many times has someone said to you, oh, you're a producer, so what do you actually do?
1: So many times.
0: Same here. So make sure to catch Inside Pop every other Wednesday on Maximum Fun to indulge your pop culture obsessions.
1: And to hear in-depth interviews from the movers and the shakers in TV, music, film, and more.
0: It's Bullseye. And for Jesse Thorne, I'm April Wolf. Let's get back to my conversation with Bo Burnham, creator of the new film 8th Grade. It's out now. You mentioned the idea that, you know, we can all see ourselves in Elsie. And I, I, I also feel like maybe... Um, younger people can potentially see themselves in the father and maybe understand, you know, where that's coming from. And I think it'd be great if we could play a clip from um, one of their conversations. Um, It's uh, from the part where uh, the father is dropping off Kayla um, and she's wrapping up her last week of middle school. And it is, it's just so beautiful, kind of, it almost feels off the cuff. It feels so real. And um, let's just listen to uh, her dad dropping Kayla off.
2: Can you not look like that, please? What? Like what? Just like the way you're looking.
3: Looking at the road?
2: You can look at the road, dad. I obviously didn't mean that. Just like, don't be weird and quiet while you do it. Sorry. Sorry. Hey, how was the shadow No, thing? you were being quiet, which is fine. Just, like, don't be weird and quiet. Because, like, I look over at you and I think you're about to drive us into a tree or something. And then I get really freaked out and then I can't text my friends. So just, like, be quiet and drive. And don't look weird and sad. Please. Okay. That's worse.
1: Did <laughs> That's another one where... You know that's a, that that got to just be one take because they could do it, um, which was really. But that was the first scene I wrote.
0: That's the quite, first scene that you wrote,
1: other than the videos. When I got out of the scene, out of the videos, that was the first scene I wrote.
0: Yeah. Why was that the first one that you wrote?
1: I don't know. I just had them in the car, like like the, the way I had written it was I wrote like I just tried to write just a bunch of things that I enjoyed, like just put her in a bunch of things that I thought I would that that I wanted to see mm-hmm. and then when I had 60 or 70 pages I I like read it and got went okay how could this fit into a structure but it was literally just I didn't know why she was in the car I didn't know where they were going but uh yeah it's fun. you know it's very nice for me to <laughs> like and it I've never had the experience where I if, if you were to play any of my you know like when I'm listening to my stand-up show I am trying to take my headphones off I'm like I can't stand doing it it's so nice to be able to have um I've never had the experience of being able to like watch something I participated in mm-hmm. uh, after the fact and still enjoy it because I don't see my hand in it. I don't see all I see is them and all I hear is them and and I I really still can enjoy I can enjoy the performances for so long that it's uh that's a good thing. That's I guess that's just a side note of my own mental stuff. I think this might be the only thing I'll be able to watch in 10 years. <laughs>
0: <laughs> because you you are positively out of body. It
1: is. Yeah, no, yeah and, and that was part of it was like I tried to address my own anxiety by performing it on stage in a one-man show. And that unsurprisingly turned out to not be very fruitful and actually get me further into my head. <laughs> and the way to deal with anxiety is actually to speak it with other people and realize that you are not alone in this. And and it's the two sides of the coin that I realized were my, you know, salvation and my obliteration, which was, I am not unique and I'm not alone. Like... The problems I'm facing are not because I'm the most special, deepest boy in the world, but also other people are feeling this, and, and that's a good thing.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me here today, Beau. Appreciate Bo. it.
1: Thanks for the time. Thank you.
0: Bo Burnham, folks. Eighth Grade is out in theaters now. I'm really excited about this one. We didn't get to talk about it in this interview, but if you haven't seen enough different sides of Bo, he's also written a book of poems. It's called Egghead, or You Can't Survive on Ideas Alone. It's Bullseye. I'm April Wolf. Morgan Neville is a documentary filmmaker. For the first decade and change in his career, almost all the movies he made focused on musicians, people like Iggy Pop, Muddy Waters, Johnny Cash. His breakthrough came in 2013 with 20 Feet from Stardom. It's a touching, really human portrait of the lives of backup singers.
3: So it was like very late at night, and I was very, you know, a little pregnant had curlers and the whole thing in my head, getting ready to go to bed. And we got a call, Barry. there's a group of guys in town called Rolling, the Rolling Somebodies, and they're from England, and they need somebody that will sing with them. They picked me up with silk pajamas on, <laughs> a mink coat, and a Chanel scarf on
0: my head.
1: It was in the middle of the night, and and, and we thought well, we would love to have a woman sing this
4: part. I didn't know. That. I'm from Adam.
0: Since then, he's branched out. He covered William F. Buckley and Gore Vidal's televised debates in 2015's Best of Enemies. And he worked on the Netflix food series Ugly Delicious. His latest is Won't You Be My Neighbor? A documentary about the late Fred Rogers, or Mr. Rogers. Maybe you already heard about it. It's the documentary out now that made your mom cry. And if you go see it, you'll probably cry too. Won't You Be My Neighbor? is an honest portrait of one of the kindest, most sincere people to have ever lived. He talked with Jesse Thorne about the movie and how Fred Rogers' lessons can make us better people today. But before we get into that, let's take a listen to a little bit from the movie. In this clip, we'll hear from Margie Whitmer, who served as producer for Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. She worked on more than 250 episodes between 1982 and 2001
3: had a director that once said to me, you take all of the elements that make good television
4: and do the exact opposite, you have Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Low production values, simple set, unlikely star. Yet, it worked.
3: Because he was saying something really important. Love is at the root of everything all learning, all parenting, all relationships, love or the lack of it. And what we see and hear on the screen is part of who we become.
4: Morgan Neville, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. You made a lot of documentaries about rock and roll guys for a guy making a documentary about Mr. Rogers.
2: (laughs) (laughs) He's kind of rock and roll, though. Oh, really? Yes. How's that? He had such (laughs) – it's funny to say about Mr. Rogers – such swagger. Um, It's amazing that he was so consistently who he was in every situation he was ever in. And he had this attitude that – he was going to try and change the world, you know, and it was radical in that way, radical in the way that he was trying to get to the root of the thing, back to the basics of things. And I think that's how I thought of him, you know, that he was, yeah, he was a rock star. It's almost scary
4: to me the extent to which he appears to have been the man in his life who he appeared to be on television. I think maybe just because it makes me question the way that I – the choices that I make in the world.
2: Well, it's funny. I mean I think something that I'd say the majority of people expect is to be disappointed (laughs) that um, I had many people when I told them I was making this film say to me, please don't destroy my childhood basically please don't tell me there's something that's going to make mr rogers fall from the altar like everybody else has fallen from the altar and you know i didn't go into it with an agenda one way or the other um but it, and it wasn't about that in the first place but you know the big secret about mr rogers is he's one of these rare characters who actually is not only as good as his television character but actually is more impressive than his television character But I think it says a lot about us that we have come to view people like that with suspicion, because how could somebody be that good? You know, there must be some other shoe to drop on that, and that, in a way, is kind of a lot of what the film's about, which is how do we think about goodness? You can call it goodness, you can call it kindness. I think Rogers would call it grace. But those are the kinds of things that people kind of laugh at, you know, like being kind is like believing in rainbows and unicorns. You know, it's not – it feels naive and quaint in a way and I feel like that is not how we should think about those things. I feel like Fred was a warrior for kindness, (laughs) you know, as he says in the film. Not Pollyanna-ish stuff, you know, but honest to goodness kindness that that's something that you have to fight for because we all take it for granted that we're going to live in the neighborhood together and we can trade against that in how we behave every day. But I don't think we should count on it. There's a moment in the film, a bit of archival footage
4: of him being interviewed where he says, you may think that this opinion is ingenuous and I was caught short by it simply because... I'm so much more used to the, <laughs> the negative or contrary form of that disingenuous. Yes, um, you know, part of his, part of his battle was to say and believe these things in a public way that did not lead people to believe that he was
2: simple-minded or a fool. It's it's true. I mean, I think we usually conflate simple with simple-minded or superficial when, of course, what he was doing was simple and deep, and that is a very different thing. That's where you get into things like love and spirituality is simple and deep, and that is a tough thing to pull off because to do that, you have to be honest and open and vulnerable These are things that people don't like to do publicly, and it's something he did again and again and again. It's something I felt like I personally learned a lot and just thought a lot about in making this film was the value of putting yourself out there emotionally and just embracing sincerity in an era where there's not a big premium on sincerity.
0: We'll finish up Jesse's interview with Morgan in a bit. When we return from a short break, Mr. Rogers makes Jesse cry. And he'll probably do the same to you. Don't miss it. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Babbel, a language program that quickly teaches real-life conversations in a new language. Choose from Spanish, French, Italian, German, and more. Babbel's 10- to 15-minute lessons use interactive dialogues and speech recognition technology to get you speaking your new language correctly and confidently. Try Babbel for free by downloading the app or going to Babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L dot com.
2: Hi,
1: I'm Paula Poundstone. And I'm Adam Felber.
2: Adam, I haven't gotten one thing done today. Well,
1: let me see your to-do list. Ah, yeah, well, here, make 30-second promo for nobody listens to Paula Poundstone, so at least you're getting that done. Score! Except you haven't said what the show is about.
2: We're like a comedy field guide to life starring me and you. I give useful advice, and we have real experts to talk about things like how to keep a friend or what to do when you encounter a bear.
1: Bully for you, but you haven't said where people can find the show.
2: Oh, MaximumFun.org or wherever you find your podcasts. Hey, it's Guy Raz here, and on our latest episode of How I Built This, how Steve Madden took high-end shoe designs, gave them low-end prices, and turned his name into a $3 billion shoe company. You can find How I Built This on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: Welcome back to Bullseye. In for Jesse Thorne, I'm April Wolf, host of Maximum Funds movie podcast, Switchblade Sisters. Right now, you're listening to Jesse Talk with Morgan Neville, director of Won't You Be My Neighbor?, It's a documentary about the life of Fred Rogers. Let's get back to Jesse and Morgan.
4: There's a scene in the movie, a a clip that I remembered actually very vividly from my own childhood, of Mr. Rogers talking to a kid who is six or seven years old and had had a tumor on his spine. And when the tumor was removed, it had damaged his nerves and he had lost a substantial amount of control of his arms and legs. And used a wheelchair for that reason. And I was watching it in the context of having been thinking a lot about uh, people living with disabilities and the independent living movement, which is the work my dad did as a kid. And Hmm. I wrote a piece about it on the show recently. And um, I thought how easily... It and clearly it seemed to come to this man, Fred Rogers, to relate to this child on his own terms as a human being, mm-hmm. which is for many people living with disabilities like exactly
2: all they're asking for. He he did it. I mean, Fred Fred never liked to use the term disability. He said, the people with disabilities are the people who aren't in touch with their own emotional self, <laughs> which is a very Fred Rogers thing to say. You know, he would say special needs if he had to, but, but he had many children of special needs on the program year after year and visit the set and everything else. Um, but that Jeffrey Erlinger, the boy you're talking about, which is such an incredible clip and one of his all-time favorite moments in the history of the show...
3: It's you, I like. It. It's not the things you wear. It's not the way you do your hair. But it's you, I like. It. The way you are right now. The way, way down, down deep inside you. Not, not the, the things, things that hide you. Not your fancy chair. That's just beside beside you, but it's you I I like, every part of you, you. your skin, skin, your eyes, your feelings, whether old or or new, it's it's you I like. It is you I like, Jeff. Thanks. And there must be times when you do feel blue. Uh Uh-huh. I'm not feeling blue right now, though. Me neither. (laughs) I'm so glad that you came today.
2: Thanks. But Jeffrey's family, his parents and his sister, who I just met in Seattle at a screening, who came and it was like this amazing, she brought her whole family and Jeffrey's niece and nephews. um, She said when they first met, Fred uh, had actually come to Milwaukee, which was near their home in, in Wisconsin. And this is long before Jeff went on the show because Jeff had written a letter and Fred was touring and he made sure they had a breakfast together. And so Fred came and as he met Jeff and Jeff's sister, without anybody asking, without asking permission, he, as he was talking to Jeff, cut Jeff's pancakes and started feeding Jeff as they were talking. And that's something – their family had done for him their whole lives. And no outsider had ever done that before for Jeff. And without even having to ask, Fred knew what that would mean. And then Jeff's sister said, and then Fred went out of his way to talk to me because he knew having a sibling with who needed that much attention could be very hard on on her. And so he made sure to really give her focus and attention. And this all happened kind of invisibly, and it speaks volumes to how in tune Fred was with what every child needed out of every situation. And it's something he did again and again. I mean, I'm, just, I'm getting chills just thinking about it. I mean, it, it also speaks to how deeply and sincerely
4: committed he was to engaging human beings on an individual human level. The way that he relates to a kid with a serious physical disability neither ignores that defining fact of that kid's life, nor allows it to be the sole defining fact of that kid's life, right? Absolutely. In, in the same yeah. way that, you know, you you talk with um, Francois Clemens, who's uh, played Officer Clemens on the show, and uh, he is both black and gay. And... You can see the way – how deeply grateful he was to have had a person in his life, especially coming from the context that Fred Rogers – you know, Fred Rogers is the squarest white guy. Yeah, and he was a rich kid
2: from – minister from Latrobe, Pennsylvania. And Francois was a very poor kid who grew up in a broken house in Youngstown, Ohio who happened to be an amazing singer and ended up studying opera in Pittsburgh, which is how he met Fred. And Fred recruited him to come onto the show shortly after Martin Luther King's assassination and to say, we need an integrated neighborhood, and that person of color should be the policeman in the neighborhood, which was all... I mean, there was nothing accidental about these decisions that Fred made. But Francois... uh, you know, Francois said, well, F- Fred was a good listener and I was a really good talker. <laughs> <laughs> and Francois said, you know, I, Fred didn't understand about being poor or about being black. And I really talked to him about those things to help him understand what those meant. And Fred was dying to learn, learn those things. I mean, he really wanted to understand what those things meant. And then address them in the show. Uh, And I think that was part of what he was doing always was trying to understand a broader world. I mean he was a seeker without a doubt. He was trying to learn everything and understand different points of view um, and then bring those to bear in the neighborhood. And it wasn't easy and he – you know, he made – Mistakes, And he was riddled with doubt. You know, I mean, there's an aspect of Fred that's like a tortured artist. Um, but I think that understanding the human struggle that went into what he was doing makes you appreciate even more what it was that he did do.
4: What was Fred Rogers' relationship with the fact that Francois Clemens was gay? He was, he was hired on the think, show that, it, like— at the end of the 1960s. Yeah,
2: so the summer of 68, Francois started. And Fred knew pretty early on that Francois was gay. And Francois was married for a short time. Unsuccessfully, of course, as he says in the film. Um, And Fred didn't know how to handle it. He knew Francois was gay. Um, I think Fred didn't yet understand really what that meant and when francois wanted to come out in the early 70s fred told him he couldn't and i think that's a decision he he regretted i think he would have made a different decision later um and he ended up being a huge advocate for homosexual homosexual rights and in the church and out of the church and elsewhere uh, pittsburgh, and moving to a much more progressive church that actually openly welcomed homosexuals into the congregation. so I think it's part of a a process he went through of trying to grow, and that's something that was never talked about publicly, but it was something that I think he was on this journey to understand. And I think when he came to understand the pain it caused Francois, that was a key for him to understand <laughs> that his beliefs were secondary to the pain and the fear and the insecurity, because that was the language that Fred spoke first. So so he did change, um, because I think fundamentally he was focused on what makes us (laughs) full of love and less full of hate and everything else was secondary
4: why did Fred Rogers dedicate his life to healing other people's
2: pain well I think the (laughs) it's it's gotta get back to his own childhood I mean Somebody wouldn't be so focused on children and um trying to- heal people emotionally if they weren't themselves um, unhealed in some way i mean Fred on i mean on the surface of things, just to talk about his childhood for a second, you know he grew up an only child to an affluent Family and he loved his parents, but his parents were of a very different parenting generation um that weren't comfortable with emotions and Fred was sickly, he was overweight, and he also came of age during the Lindbergh kidnapping uh, as a young boy, which is in the wake of Charles Lindbergh's son being kidnapped um Basically, a lot of affluent families said, we don't want that to happen to us. We're going to lock our kids away. So Fred was kind of kept under latchkey for quite a bit. These very protective, very kind of emotionally distant parents who didn't want him to ever show emotion. And I think that had an incredibly profound impact on him of just not knowing what to do with his fear or with his sense of how he belonged in the world, I think what started to change is his parents adopted his sister when he was 12. She was a baby. And so he then, as a 12, 13, 14, 15-year-old, had a front row seat to see a baby grow and to see what that meant. And so he not only remembered his own childhood, he witnessed firsthand his sister coming of age. And in those years, as he made it into high school, he blossomed he became a great musician songwriter um a mimic a popular person in in the class he by senior year he was the class president um and skinny as, as you see and it kind of became the person who fred was but he had to go through this kind of chrysalis phase of um a lot of darkness and i think he made it his life's mission to try and erase that type of darkness from as many other people's lives as he could. Yeah, I'm not sure if that totally answers your question, but it's a, tough, it's a tough thing to figure out what made him that way.
4: I want to play this clip from 1969 that's in your film. And um, so President Johnson had established public broadcasting a few years earlier and – Um, it was in the late 1960s under threat um, for a variety of reasons, but under very sincere threat because it was not, you know, this was a time before they could uh, do what they usually do, which is just bring Big Bird to Capitol Hill. (laughs) Yeah, but Big Bird wasn't out yet.
2: You know, Sesame Street was starting right at this
4: moment. And um, this is uh, Mr. Rogers' testifying before this committee hearing uh, that's going to decide what to do about the future of public public broadcasting and he has been asked not to read the statement that he had prepared and in fact kind of mocked from the podium for suggesting that he might read his statement and so he's speaking extemporaneously and he and he recites the lyrics of of a song he wrote for the show
3: this has to do with that good feeling of control which i feel that the children need to know is there and it starts out what do you do with the mad that you feel and that first line came straight from a child i work with children doing puppets in in very personal communication with small groups What do you do with the mad that you feel when you feel so mad you could bite when the whole wide world seems oh so wrong and nothing you do seems very right? It's great to be able to stop when you've planned a thing that's wrong and be able to do something else instead and think this song. I can stop when I want to, can stop when I wish, can stop, stop, stop any time. Know that there's something deep inside that helps us become what we can. I think it's wonderful. I think it's wonderful. <clears throat> Looks like you just earned the twenty million dollars. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Well, congratulations it happened. I started
2: crying. <laughs> it's amazing. You what you hear in that is that here's you know a tough-nosed senator John Pastore of Rhode Island who is about to read the right act to Fred Rogers and Fred doesn't change. He's as he always is. I think how rare that is that somebody in the face of that could be as vulnerable as he was to read those lyrics and to be as available as he was there. And the the reaction he gets is incredible. But it shows that he was willing to put himself out there in this way that you just don't see. And that I find so inspiring.
4: i mean it 's so incredible to see anyone who is able to be that kind of leader without making their work about themselves i mean it's it 's like overwhelming to watch and listen to that 's not a question no it's, it's
2: well i've thought a lot about this lately um, I, I keep coming back to the idea of grace. Because Fred talked about grace all the time and grace, um, he had a, a sign in his office that was the Greek word for grace, which is chari, which is the root of the word charity. And grace is the idea in the biblical term that it's the undeserved goodness bestowed upon you by God. So in other words, it's the goodness you put out there, even if it's not deserved. It's not because you're getting something back. It's not even because it's a nice thing to do it's, or that the person is deserving. It's, even if they don't deserve it, you are kind to them. And that sense that of selflessness, of putting that much good out there with no sense of what do I get out of it is so rare in this day and age. I don't see it in our politics. I don't see it in our economics. It's rare to see in our media you know we live in a culture that is so that that feels so alien and that it's just tough i mean we live in disgraceful times you know how do we how do we remind ourselves that that to be graceful is not um it's not a virtue it's a duty you know that it's something that we have to try and live up to because that's how we're going to be able to move forward because otherwise it feels like we're getting pretty stuck. I mean, it's really hard not to be judgmental in the world. And Fred often quoted the Bible. Or he quotes Jesus in the Bible saying the one thing that evil cannot tolerate is forgiveness. And even in the PSA we have in the film in the wake of 9/11, he says The three most important things we have to keep in our mind at a moment like that are the ideas of faith, pardon, and love. Not many people were immediately talking about pardon in the wake of 9-11, but I feel like this sense of forgiveness and pardon and understanding is really difficult to do, but that's what I think Fred would be doing today. You know, I think that was in his bones of, like, it's what I try and think about in terms of how to process the world we're in today. You know, how do we understand it, not how do we condemn it? Because if we don't understand it, we're not going to fix it. Morgan Neville, thank you for coming on
4: Bullseye. Thank you for your beautiful film. And uh, I'm sorry that instead of asking you questions, I just said stuff and tried not to cry. (laughs) (laughs) It's great talking to you.
3: It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? It's a neighborly day in this beauty, wood. a neighborly day. Jesse
0: Thorne talking with Morgan Neville. Morgan's movie, Won't You Be My Neighbor, is in theaters now.
3: I have always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood. With you, so let's make the most of this beautiful day. Since we're together, we might as well say, Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? Won't you please? Won't you please? Please won't you be my neighbor?
0: Every week on Bullseye, we like to leave you with a culture tip from the host. It's called The Outshot. It's a frustrating thing to see a movie so good, so fully realized, and to find that the director only made one in their lifetime. Wanda, written and directed by the late Barbara Loden, is such a film. Wanda tells the story of a simple Pennsylvania woman who drifts through life. She's not good at much, so she's just stopped trying. We meet her when she bums some bus fare from a friend to get to court. Her husband's asked for a divorce, and Wanda well, she can't really argue with his assessment that she's a bad wife and mother.
3: Mrs. Goronsky, your husband told me you deserted him and the children. What do you have to say? Nothing. Did you desert them? Listen, Judge, if he wants a divorce, just give it to him. Now, Mrs. Goronsky, you have two young children here. They'd be better off with him. What? They'd be better off with him. You have no objections to this divorce? No, I don't have any objection
0: to it. After court, the newly divorced Wanda doesn't shout yippee and embrace her newfound freedom. No. Instead, she roams around town, killing time, until she pops into a bar to use the bathroom. There, she spills her guts to the man behind the bar and goes home with him. Only, Wanda's so naive that she doesn't even know he was robbing the place. Or that she's become an accomplice to the crime. Here's Loden as Wanda. She's reading the next day's paper to the thief, Mr. Dennis, realizing what's actually happened.
3: Although the robber came in alone, he left, according to Mr. Maluki, with a female whom he wasn't able to see was lying behind the
0: bar. Loden wrote the film from personal experience, believing that if she hadn't left rural North Carolina to make it in movies and the theater, that she would have ended up like Wanda, divorced with two kids, drunk when she could afford it. But that wasn't Loden's life. She began her career acting alongside the likes of Ben Gazzara and Robert Redford on the stage. But she became well-known for her 1961 role in Elia Kazan's Splendor in the Grass. She played the sister to Warren Beatty's character.
3: Jenny, I know who that guy is. Jenny? That guy's a bootlegger. Is he? Here, do me up. He's married. Do you know he's a married man? How do you know so much about him, sweetie pie? You're not going out with him. Is that so?
0: I'd like to see you try this is and stop Christmas me. It's Christmas day. You're going to Don't stay right to home here, thief. and you're going to be decent to, to your mother, day. Jenny.
3: You're not leaving here.
0: And after a few collaborations with Kazan, she married him sometime between 1966 and 68, depending on the source. It was Kazan who would encourage Loden not just to write and star in her own film, but to direct it as well. In Wanda, Loden delivers such a brilliant performance as the title character, even though the script has no high points of action. It's just a simple joy to watch her embody this woman. Kazan said that Loden's acting style was remarkably similar to that of Marlon Brando's. Both would surprise Kazan with their improvisation, which Kazan thought always felt alive, because even they wouldn't know what they were going to say until it came out of their mouths. Wanda is full of these surprising moments. Here's Loden improvising a scene in a diner, where her character is eating spaghetti and bread with Mr. Dennis, played by Michael Higgins. Loden's goal in this exchange is simply to annoy Mr. Dennis until he must down some pills for a headache.
3: Oh, did you want that piece of bread? Can I have it? That's the best part I like. Don't you like that? That part? Slop it out? Huh? You don't like it? I do. What's the matter, you got a headache?
0: Loden said she didn't want her film about a couple on the lam to be funny, but Wanda's awkward charm often lightens the mood right exactly when the story needs a breather. Loden was also careful about how she portrayed life for poor people in podunk towns. Growing up, she said she always kind of hated movies because of how perfect everyone appeared on the screen, which is one reason why Loden and Higgins are the only trained actors in the film. Everyone else was a non-actor with an interesting face, someone who is a local from nearby. And while Loden found that many wanted to compare her film to Bonnie and Clyde, she made clear that her film would be more honest about the types of people who resort to a life of crime. Loden was deeply sympathetic to those who have very little. She didn't enjoy the romanticized versions of poverty and crime in Hollywood movies. The reception to Wanda was overwhelmingly positive. The film premiered at Cannes, and even if critics like Pauline Gale struggled to fully understand the character of a woman who nonchalantly sleeps around and lets life blow her wherever it will, press still agreed that Loden had a future behind the camera. Loden wrote and directed this film herself, but it did seem that that success made some folks question whether this gem of a movie had more than a little of her husband's hand in it. Here's a clip of Loden on The Mike Douglas Show, where she appeared alongside John Lennon and Yoko Ono.
3: Okay. You're, uh, Barb, uh, by the way, Barbara's film has just been chosen by two New York film critics as okay. one of the ten best pictures of 1971. That's saying a lot. Oh, that's doing pretty uh, well. I think that's doing pretty oh. well. Oh, hi. Well. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Does your husband have anything to do? Does he stick his nose in anywhere else in your filmmaking? Or Well, um, I try to get him to, do, to help me as much as he can. I mean, uh, we help each other.
0: Hear how she oh so elegantly sidesteps the question of Kazan's involvement while also raising the possibility that it is she who is secretly assisting in Kazan's work. But I have to wonder, maybe if she had said Kazan was involved, someone would have invested in her next picture. Loden began developing more film projects right after Wanda. She was energized and inspired by the response, everyone loved this film. She and her cinematographer and editor, Nicholas Perferris, had thought that maybe someone would bite on the projects. If she could make Wanda for $120,000 with a four-person crew, surely someone would trust her with more this time. But that's not how it worked. Nobody invested in her personal work. The only films that she directed after Wanda were short educational movies shown in schools. One, called The Boy Who Liked Deer, Espoused the dangers and vices of vandalism. While the message is cheesy and dramatic, if you look past that, you can still see Loden's trademark style of gritty realism and her inclination as a director to trust her actors to lead the scene.
3: Hey, hey don't do that! Ah! 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 Cut it out! Ah! I said cut it out!
0: My favorite of her educational shorts is called The Frontier Experience, written by Joan Micklin-Silver, director of Hester Street in Between the Lines. Loden directed and starred in The Frontier Experience herself, giving a taut, restrained performance, probably not appreciated by its audience of bored, angsty teens in history class. September 20th. Today we saw our new home
3: not quite what George and I expected. Thought occurs to me.
0: Why did the earlier homesteaders move on? Loden had tried to get another feature film off the ground, all the way up until cancer took her away in 1980. When she appeared in that Mike Douglas segment, John Lennon asked her. Do you have any
3: problems working with the men, you know, like giving them instructions and things like that?
0: And Loden replied. I did, but I
3: think it was because I, I was afraid that they would not accept what I said and I wasn't quite that authoritative in my own self. I think I could do it better next time.
0: I only wish she'd gotten a next time. That's my outshot. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson with help from Casey O'Brien. Production fellows for MaximumFun.org are Jesus Ambrosio and Shayna Deloria. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. Our interstitial music was provided to us by DJW, a.k.a. Dan Wally. Our theme song was recorded by The Go Team, thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries Records for letting us use it. If you'd like to hear any of our past programs, we have over 15 years' worth of interviews available. Just go to MaximumFun.org to listen. Jesse's back next week. If you want to hear more from me, please check out my podcast, Switchblade Sisters. We're available on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, pretty much everywhere. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.